Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 54 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I'm joined by Mary, a woman who refers to me as the first and second man asshole. I am still only Darren. How are you, Mary? Hey, fucker, I do not. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> both battles are important. Every battle is important, so I had to go with first and second. Yes. <laughs> God, first and second man asshole. That's a good one. See, we're going to do it there, okay? It's almost <laughs> like we're talking about Manassas today, Mary, a little bit. So I think so. Before we get started, how are you? What's going on? I'm good. How are you? Good. Looks like the bees have left you alone as you sit there in front of Bronner's farm today. Yes, they have. Yes, I'm over my little episode that I had on Saturday on our Facebook Live. For anybody who joined yeah. us for our Facebook Live, you would have seen me waving my arms around, probably at what I realize now looked like nothing. But I was getting swarmed by bees who apparently wanted my sour beer that I was drinking. And then I almost oh. went inside and then they went away. It was an adventure. It was it was the Battle of Bee Ridge. The sec it was no it was the, the second seal. battle of Bee Ridge. Okay. In the Northern Theater of the Civil War. See, they all See, come so, back. They all come yeah. back. So we got some fun conversation to talk about tonight. Almost exactly a year ago, we talked about the Battle of Second Manassas. We did. And we're going to do a deep dive, as you like to say, <laughs> on this battle <laughs> as we talk about Bronner's Farm, also known as the Battle of Groveton. But as always, before we start this, we have business to take care I of. I do. I didn't ask you how you were. How are you doing? Oh, no one cares. I'm fine. <laughs> Maybe I fucking do. <laughs> oh, well, okay. I'm fine. I am fine. It's a, it's a little hot. It's, it's, a good all, it's, it's always a, hot, isn't it? Oh, it always is. It's always hot. It's always hot. Anyway, one way to keep cool on these hot days is through libations, and that is called the Segway. That being said, what are you drinking tonight, Mayor? I am drinking Ransack the Universe by Collective Arts Brewing. It has nothing to do with this episode. The only thing it might have to do with the Civil War is it has a crescent moon on it, which, as everybody knows, is the symbol of my favorite core. The 11th Corps, which is led by Oliver Otis Howard. There, I got my Howard reference in. Done. Okay, great. What are you drinking tonight, Weeks? I'm drinking from O'Connor's called Tuck Tuck Goes because there's no appropriate reason. I just did it for this one because of the do-do-do-do-do aspect Fuck of it all. God. And I'm drinking it out of my Iron Brigade mug because although they weren't the Iron Brigade yet, they were the Black Hats. Four of these five regiments were present at this battle we are going to talk nice. about tonight. I am drinking it oh, out of yeah. my Iron Brigade mug, too. But also, the name of your beer is going to come up in this episode, O'Connor. Is it not? As a matter of fact, it is. Yes. It is. That talk. is also called talk. a segue. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Look at you. Look look at you as we talk about Edgar O'Connor. So yes. anyway, as you have surmised, we are talking about the Battle of Bronner's Farm. So a little background on this one. We're not going to go too, too far back. Prince William County near Manassas, Virginia. Really, this was the kickoff of the Second Battle of Manassas. Now, the battle was centered primarily on a confusion of night fighting, bad communication. It was kind of a mess on both sides, especially the Confederate side. It did set the stage, though, for one of the more significant Confederate battles, the Second Battle of Manassas, that would take place on the 29th and 30th, two days later. So real quick, how did they get here? At the end of the seven days battles, Robert E. Lee, who had just taken over for the Army of Northern Virginia, drove George McClellan's Army of the Potomac off the Virginia Peninsula. And it caused all kinds of issues with uh, George McClellan in Washington, D.C. Regardless, Lee was able to keep him away from Richmond. So it ended that campaign that George McClellan had all kinds of promise. Now, we, we talked before about how there was so many issues beyond that that forced McClellan away, but we'll just, for argument's sake, he was driven away from, from Richmond. Lee decided he wanted to take his show on the road north into Maryland. So he's going to have an army of about 55,000 guys divided into two wings. James Longstreet is going to command the right wing, and Thomas Stonewall Jackson, you may have heard of him, he's going to command the left wing. Lincoln 
is going to put McClellan in timeout at this point. Yep, he's, he's going to tell him bring, to go sit in the corner. Go sit in the corner. <laughs> he's going to bring in a guy named General John Pope to command and his Army of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And while George McClellan's Army of the Potomac is in Washington, D.C., he is going to pull some of the AOP troops to join Pope. He's going to end up with about 70,000 guys with this Army of Virginia. Now, Pope, he's a cocky and arrogant prick. Oh, and he comes from the Western theater, and he's like, in the West, we only see the backs of our enemies. <laughs> That's that, pissed, he has, that pissed McClellan off. You know, Brigadier General Samuel Sturgis, he had that quote, that quote where he goes, I don't care much for John Pope, one pinch of owl dung. That's the quote he said about John Pope. So no mincing words. I like 19th Robert, century shade. We really need to get back to that kind of shade, I think. It was. Robert E. Lee, he called Pope a miscreant. The miscreant Pope primarily goes after Pope threatened anyone, man or woman, who corresponded with anyone in the Confederate Army. They were subject to hanging. So Robert E. Lee is like, what the hell is wrong going with this guy? Pope's job was tough at the same time. He had to, at the same time, protect Washington as well as stay near Richmond to keep the rebel army away from attacking McClellan. So he's kind of doing two things. And so the Northern Army had a tough situation. Lincoln was put in a real tough spot. And now he's got Robert E. Lee and the hard-charging army in Northern Virginia coming at him. Lee doesn't really see McClellan as a threat because the Union Army is currently split between McClellan and Pope. They're widely separated. So Lee feels like he can take advantage of this. So on July the 13th, he's going to send old Stonewall to Gordonsville, and he's going to clash with the vanguard of Pope's army at Cedar Mountain. And then he orders Longstreet to join Jackson. And that brings us to August 19th, where Pope manages to foil these plans by withdrawing behind the Rappahannock River. So they're kind of playing this sort of cat and mouse game that is going to lead to the Battle of Second Manassas. So then that's also when I think A.P. Hill's going to come and join with Jackson too with 12,000 troops. So Jackson's being pretty well reinforced here. And Jackson's going to get in Pope's head a little bit to your point Mm -hmm. too. Pope is going, they're going to bump into each other at the Battle of Bristol Station on the Mm -hmm. 26th of August. He's going to capture a lot of the supply depot at Manassas Junction and cause all kinds of havoc and destroy a lot of supplies. He's going to be clearly in Pope's head, Stonewall Jackson. Pope knows Jackson's near, but he doesn't know where the hell he is. So he's going to actively look for him. He saw his destroyed supply depot at Manassas Junction, but he also caught some Confederate deserters. And they told him, oh yeah, Stonewall's, he's up at Centerville, just north of the Manassas battlefield. So he's thinking, all right, I think I know where he is. I'm going to get ready to call people over and take care of him. But where Jackson actually was, he was in the woods with the old Rosewoods clown near the Manassas <laughs> battlefield. He was. He was along a ridge line near an unfinished railroad cut near the what's called the Bronner Farm, just north of the Warrington Turnpike. Now, Pope is completely clueless to Jackson's whereabouts, though Centerville was his probably his best guess. That's where he thinks he probably is. Mm-hmm. A.P. Hill's division, you mentioned him. He went there mistakenly. He had to backtrack all the way back. And it was that element where they assumed that's where Jackson was going because his troops of A.P. Hill's were in Centerville. Yeah. Now, Pope, he's in his head. He's going to send his entire army to go get Jackson. Yeah, which, so which is both, a you know, huge error on his part. And, you know, we both talked about this, I think, in our episode about Second Manassas, like Pope just becomes almost obsessed with getting Jackson to the point where he's ignoring the fact that, you know, Lee and Longstreet are out there somewhere, too. We touched on that in our episode about Second Manassas. We're not going to touch on it today, but we all know how that goes down. Pope's early element is going to get to Centerville, just like a Friday night when no one's around. He saw no one present. 
car. And so Jeez. he had to march. He had to march back and forth in that hot Virginia summer heat. Don't forget, this is August, right? Yeah. So this is a hot, hot time of the summertime. Enter Rufus King's First Division of the Third Corps under Irving McDowell. So he's getting the orders to march towards Centerville, and they are west of the old Manassas battlefield. Mm-hmm. So they start marching down towards Centerville, west to east along that Warrington Turnpike yeah. we mentioned. Now this is the turnpike where I just mentioned, where right north of there in the woods is Jackson's entire 24,000 men army. They're about a mile long at a battlefront just north of Bronner Farm. Rebel lines going from left to right. It's going to be Richard Yule's 3rd Division, A.P. Hill 2nd, and William Tolliver's 1st Division, all part of Jackson's left wing. Mm -hmm. So he's got a big army, and these are battle-tested dudes. Rufus King is going to kind of stumble right into it. Yep, he is. But before that happens, it's actually not going to be King leading these guys on that day. Right. Like he's he's having to be held back because King had epilepsy and he happened to unfortunately suffer a seizure, I think in the early morning hours of August 28th. So he's not going to be part of this. So marching along this Warrenton Turnpike, you have Hatch going first, followed by General John Gibbon and his Black Hat Brigade, who are in just a few weeks time going to get a very famous name at the Battle of South Mountain. And then you have Abner Doubleday and you have General Marcena R. Patrick, and they are going mm-hmm. down that Warrenton Turnpike. Just to note that in the area of Bronner's Farm, that these guys are passing by, you know, Gibbon's Black Hats, the 2nd Wisconsin is with them, and they are the only ones that have really seen any hard, hard fighting, and they saw it at first Manassas. So they're passing within maybe a mile of where they fought at Henry House mm-hmm. Hill against Stonewall Jackson, and they're about to fight against mm-hmm. him again. So if you've been at Bronner's Farm and, you, and you're on the ridge line, you look down, you look south, mm-hmm. and you can still see. You see trees to your left, trees to your right, and yeah. there's a road that goes in the middle, and that's where they were going. So Stonewall Jackson, late afternoon on the 28th, he's asleep, and he wakes to the sound of distant horses. So he looks down from the ridge line and sees Union troops marching east on that Warrington Turnpike just 300 yards away. Yeah. And he's like, what the hell? So he jumps on his horse and he rides along and he's wearing some kind of farmer's outfit or some damn thing. He's So people looking up at him, he looks like some, probably some drunken farmer staring at him. He's riding along the ridge line and he's watching these blue jackets marching along. So Jackson, he's going to ride back to his headquarters and he's going to calmly tell his division commanders, he's going to say, gentlemen, bring out your men. And that's what's going to happen. And unfortunately, it's the last clear order Jackson gave the entire friggin' day as we go on with this. Oh, exactly. It, it is. Know. And before that, like Hatch had reconnoitered at Bronner Farm before Gibbons men are about to go on the Warrenton Turnpike. So he sends his 14th Brooklyn Zouaves in. They go forward, they, they shell the forest a little bit and not much happens. And they saw several mounted Confederates. They withdrew and Hatch wasn't alarmed by them and he kept going. So then, as you said, late afternoon when Jackson is out riding, you have Gibbons men, his Black Hat Brigade, starting to go along the Warrenton Turnpike. And because they don't fear there's going to be an attack... Hatch is completely out of sight. He's distant enough from Gibbon now that if there is an attack, he's not going to be able to get back. And just because they don't think there's going to be an attack, Doubleday and Marcena R. Patrick are going to be just kind of marching a little bit slower too. You can't close up on those in front of you to help them out if there is an attack. And that's going to be a problem in this battle. And so like Jackson is observing these guys. He's observing Gibbon. He sees them going along around six o'clock. He gives that order, as you said. And what happens? They're going to think now, he's going to pull his artillery first. Yeah. 
and he's going to open up on these marching troops. Now, the Union troops, they are under the assumption that Stonewall Jackson is in Centerville. What they, the cannon, the cannon mm-hmm. are, they think it's Jeb Stewart's rear guard horse artillery. Yeah. So like, all right, this makes sense, but this is probably Stewart. So you talk about a couple of guns, maybe some mounted guys. We're going to take care of that. So King's division, to your point, King is not part of the equation yeah. right now. They're going to unlimber their artillery and they're going to start to return fire. Now, they don't know what the hell they're shooting at. They're firing. It just sounds like I said, they thought it was Jeb. They didn't know it was Jackson himself. Artillery's going off. It's, the soldiers are hugging the ground. They're trying to stay out of the, the firefight, but they're sitting ducks. They're just laying down there. Gibbons, Doubleday, and Patrick, in lieu of King, have to decide what the friggin' hell to do at this point. Yep. You mentioned that Hatch was halfway to Michigan at this point. Yeah, he's, so he's fucking he's, gone, and right? he's like, and they're marching so, along. Like Rufus Dawes commented that the brigade marched along as unsuspectingly as if changing camp so yeah, they're not they're, they're not threatened they're whistling off we go and, you know hi ho we all off to camp we go it's left the other three double day patrick and gibbon to sit down and decide what the hell they're going to do mm-hmm. so gibbon gibbons and double day their plan they decide they're going to try to capture those rebel batteries firing at them near bronner's farm they go, well okay well we'll deal with them expecting to just horse artillery and not with no infantry support so gibbon he's going to send in that second wisconsin which is under a guy named edgar o'connor now real quick edgar o'connor a little background on him born in Cleveland. Cleveland in August of 1833. The battle happened one day before he would have turned 29. Yeah. So I don't want to give you a hint of what's going to happen to him, but he ain't going to make it. He is a U.S. Military Academy class of 1854, classmate of Oliver Otis Howard Ooh. and Jeb Stewart. Look at you go. Is it, is it Oliver or is it Olifero Howard. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name here. Oh, we'll get to that in a little while. Anyway, so he goes to school with Howard Stewart. He serves in that Western Indian Territory, what we call today Oklahoma, and he begins his career as a lawyer slash lumber merchant, which must have been the most fantastic LinkedIn profile of all time, by the way. Could you imagine his profile picture? Oh, it could have been. He probably had like a like the kind of the lumberjack plaid on, but then like maybe a nice suit jacket. See, he was the real rail splitter then. That's what he was. <laughs> not for nothing. Maybe he okay. was wearing a Canadian tuxedo. Do you know Can what that is? A Canadian tuxedo? Yeah. What? It's an all denim outfit. Oh, okay. Anyway, I apologize. Any <laughs> Canadians who may have offended. So when the war does break out, he is going to become the colonel of the second Wisconsin. Now, he's not very popular with his troops. No. He's an outspoken Democrat, for one. Many of his men don't like that. He does win over his troops' leadership skills. If you look up a picture of Edgar O'Connor, he looks exactly like Chumley from Pawn Stars. Just saying. If you want to look really? it up, that's exactly who he looks like. A big, just look him up. That's who he looks like. And he, he's going to fight with them at that first bull run. So he's going to have, to your point, he's going to have some experience. Now, he's part of that Black Cats with that battle experience we just talked about. The sun's starting to set here. And this is one thing you have to understand with the Battle of Bronner's Farm is this is one of those few battles that takes place at night for the most yeah. part. It's a very rare instance of, sun, of nighttime fighting. So what Gibbons second Wisconsin is going to do under O'Connor is they're going to try a quiet sneak up towards the rebel guns. Now, they're going to get up there, they're going to get to the woods line, and they're going to see a long line of gray infantry. They must have been more surprised when they saw that than when Cam Newton showed up at the stadium and his car didn't work in the front door. <laughs> That's how surprised they must have been today when they, when they got to those woods and saw infantry support because they didn't expect it. All they're expecting is horse artillery, and now they're dealing with the whole rebel army yep. all at one time. Exactly. They're not the Iron Brigade yet. But they're still battle-tested guys. Yep. And they are going to get into a volley with the Stonewall Brigade. Yes. Okay. 
Stonewall Brigade, you're talking about the 2nd, 4th, 5th, 27th, and 33rd Virginia, and they are going against their very battle-tested guys. So you've got two of the premier armies fighting unexpectedly at dusk at the same time. Yeah. Dare I say it's iron versus stone at this point. The Confederates have a gigantic numerical advantage. They're two they to do. one odds in this battle. The second Wisconsin is going to attack William Baylor's, that Stonewall Brigade. Baylor, who took command just three weeks earlier because where Charles Winder got killed at Cedar Mountains, he's new to battle as mm-hmm. well. And Baylor is going to be killed two days later at the 30th at the same battle. Yep. So they're going to go through battle with yep. the leaders at that railroad. The Stonewall Brigade is going to is going to be volunteering with them and they're going to start marching towards O'Connor's Badgers. They're going to get within 80 yards and then it's going to start blasting away. Now, this fight, just think of one of those, you watch one of those old hockey videos and two dudes yep. are fighting, swing and swing and both. That's what this battle was. Neither backed off. The second fired back. They went at it for 30 minutes in this true slugfest, just swinging with significantly less men. Tolliver, he is quoted as saying, there was very little maneuvering. It was a question of endurance and both endured. I think we need to talk a little bit about Tolliver. You mean Tallifero? Tallifero. Okay, so his name is spelled T-A-L-I-A-F. E-R-R-O. When we were preparing for this, I pronounced the name Talifero and then I got the whole, it's Tolliver. So you basically Hermione'd me, you know, the part in Harry Potter where she's like, it's Leviosa, not Leviosa or whatever, however the fuck she says it. That That's how... <laughs> It was like last night. Um, it's Tolliver, not Taliaferro. So anyway, it is Tolliver. I'm just giving you a hard time. Um, but anyway, interesting guy. Did you know his middle name is Booth? Yes. Yeah. So William Booth Tolliver from Virginia. He's actually in the 1870s, he becomes a Grand Master of Masons. I his, hate them. I know you do. Jeez. <laughs> That's why I brought them of, up. We bunch of creepy weirdos. <laughs> He's educated at Harvard University and the College of William and Mary. He joins the U.S. Army during the Mexican-U.S. War. And afterwards, he operated plantations using slaves because that's apparently what you did back then. He's part of the Virginia House of Delegates, so he does have some political experience. Very prominent backer of James Buchanan's presidential campaign in 1865. He continued his military service in the Virginia State Militia, and he commanded at Harper's Ferry following John Brown's raid there. So during the Civil War, he commanded the Virginia State Militia following secession in April of 1861. And then he's part of the 23rd Virginia Infantry. He's with Stonewall during the Valley Campaign and the Seven seven Days Campaign. Interesting thing, he doesn't really like Stonewall and Stonewall doesn't really like him, but Stonewall admires him for his military ability. And Tolliver's men don't like him either to the point where they assault him one time and he (laughs) manages to get away. And at the time of Bronner's Farm, he has not been in charge of the Stonewall Brigade for the Stonewall, I guess the division for very, very long. He is here fighting. We'll talk a little bit more near the end of this episode about what he does after Bronner's Farm because it's actually pretty interesting. So imagine O'Connor and Telfero, Telfero, Tolliver. Tolliver? I'll set you up on that one. Um, <laughs> they're going at it. O'Connor is going to request reinforcements from Gibbon. Okay, now Gibbon is going to send the 19th Indiana mm-hmm. under old friend Solomon Meredith, and they're going to be sent in and set up on O'Connor's left flank. This is where Gibbon really does a good job at this battle is how he sets up his regiments like chess people's on a chessboard. He the way is he does it. Right? And meanwhile, as he's doing this, as Gibbon's ordering his men into line, into formation, Stonewall Jackson is becoming more and more frustrated because he's mistakes with his own communication. Yeah. He 
He's looking, he sees his experienced troops, his Stonewall Brigade, with a two-to-one man advantage. They cannot drive these black hats back, and he's getting pissed off. Tolliver, he only sent in that one brigade, the Stonewall Brigade. He's got other brigades uh, that he has. You know, he's got Jones, and he's got his uh, the old Tolliver Brigade as well, as, you know, as well as some of the other ones he has. He doesn't send them in. He only sends in that Stonewall mm-hmm. Brigade. Meanwhile, Richard Yule, he only had prepared one brigade to attack at this point. Yep. Uh, Lawton's Georgians. And Lawton's Georgians, of his brigade, only a couple of regiments were even ready to go. Yeah, so they're feeding them in piecemeal. And I know Trimble eventually comes to join in on this too. But the thing with this is like the men are being fed in just kind of piecemeal and they're no match for Gibbon and his black hats. Like Gibbon is like, you know, we talked about him in our Iron Brigade episode before a little bit, but just real quick, he's born in Pennsylvania, raised in the South. His brothers fought for the Confederacy. He is a master of artillery. He wrote the artillerist manual. He's the guy that has made the black hats what they are. You know, he's the one that gave them the their very distinctive uniforms and all that. And he's a strict disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. They didn't like him much at first, but I think it's around this time they're finally all starting to <laughs> finally get along. Now, Mitch Stonewall, he's getting aggravated. He's going to end up personally leading mm-hmm. this Lawton's George's brigade. Not Yule. Okay, not the division yeah. guy. It's going to be Stonewall Jackson on the left of that rebel line in front of those black hats. Jackson just wants to roll right through him. He's sick of dealing with them. He's just sick of screwing with them. He wants to blast right through them. Given he's going to end up bringing in his third regiment now under William Robinson. This is the 7th Wisconsin. They're going to set up on the 2nd Wisconsin's right flank. The two lines were so close at this point, the Confederate and the Union, they could hear each other talk. That's how close they were. But now you've got three regiments lined up facing this mismatch of Confederate ones. And this vicious fight is now being infused on the Union side by more fresh, more veteran troops as they're coming in more as units versus the Confederates are coming in more piecemeal. This is a situation, call it what you want to call it, a melee, a a slugfest. Mary, when she finds out the bar is out of IPAs, whatever you want to call (laughs) It's a complete, complete disaster. I would call it a clusterfuck. But, you know, poor Gibbon, though, like, so he's able to bring his regiments in, but he he knows he's going to need reinforcements at some point. So he is sending messages back to King, who's probably not doing, probably not not the best guy to be talking to at this point. But he's also calling on Doubleday and Patrick. Now, Doubleday is eventually going to send him the 56th Pennsylvania and the 76th New York. But Patrick, he's fucked off and he's hiding. Like, he's, Uh he's basically, he's not going to be part of this at all. Just imagine this moment. Just put yourself, just shut your eyes and think about how this must have looked. This is literally the, as night is falling, I don't know what you would call it, ground zero of combat. This is fighting flashing of the muskets still out completely outnumbered but Gibbons black hats are going to refuse to fall back yep. and they're going to continue to hold their line meanwhile stonewall he's moving around frantically flipping out like like know, i was again, like i was with the bees yeah like, like the guy at the deli when he's at 100 people in front of him running around that, that's how he is he's he's losing his mind he does order isaac trimbles from yule's division to get in there on that fo- uh, forward on that rebel left to connect with lawton's georgians mm-hmm. given he sees this and he counts by moving his last red Regiment, the 6th Wisconsin under Lysander Cutler in. So Gibbon is seeing what Jackson's doing and he's countering. Jackson's playing checkers and Gibbon's playing chess yep. at this point. That's what he's doing. But unfortunately, there are mistakes on the Union side as well. In the noise of the battle, Cutler screws up at this point. He misinterprets the orders. He gets confused by the order and didn't line upright. He was supposed to line up to the right of the 7th. Instead, he kind of floated way far to the right aimlessly, kind of like a beach ball that's lost on Lake Huron floating away. That, that's what was going <laughs> on with him, right? So what happens is they end up with this gigantic 
gap, yep. okay, between the 6th and the 7th. Cutler's going to crash into Trimble's advancing brigade anyway, but he had zero support because he was all by himself. He was on an island. A 6th Wisconsin soldier, he says, talk about that rebel yell. He says, that yell, there is nothing like it this side of the infernal region in that peculiar corkscrew sensation that sends down your backbone. That's how we describe the rebel yell. Yep. Militarily, that 600-yard gap that now existed between the Union 6 on the left and the 7th Wisconsin's right is going to be a huge, huge huge problem. This is where Doubleday steps in with this guy. Yeah. And this is where he comes in with 56 Pennsylvania and the 76 New York, which are much needed by this point. But you know, they can only last for so long. Like these guys have been marching all day in the hot sun. And this is I think all that Doubleday is going to throw at him. Wainwright 76, yep. Sullivan Meredith 56 Pennsylvania. They're going to do a pretty good job for the most part, but the Union numbers are still going to be less than the Confederate numbers, even at this point, even as Jackson continues to be frustrated and confused. Actually, the other thing that the Union is doing is Gibbon has his Battery B, which is part of his Black Hat Brigade, and it is absolutely just pounding the Confederates, even though this battery is outnumbered by the Confederate artillery, they are still pounding away at them. Tolliver is going to recall that the Federal artillery was admirably served, and at one time the annihilation of our batteries seemed inevitable so destructive was the fire and this is because if you know Gibbon is incredibly talented but this is the guy that wrote the artillerist manual so he's able to do with you know he's got significantly less than what the confederates have but he's able to utilize it to the best of his ability to, to fuck them up so now it's nighttime it's completely dark the only light you can see where your enemy is is the flashes of the muskets is the only way to see where your enemy even is so now Jackson he is getting more and more aggravated he's tired of the stalemate the Rebels are pushing on that the Union, those Iron Brigade guys will not move, aided by Doubleday's guys. He is going to order a, a full-on assault on the entire Union battle line at this point. Even with that, many of the regiments never get the order. Trimble's brigade, for example, they move forward totally unsupported. They were out there on their own. Yeah. Lawton's Georgians followed, but quickly fell back because they had no support. As these bodies continue to mount and mount and mount, this is where Edgar O'Connor is going to be killed. He's a commander of the 2nd Wisconsin. He'll be shot two times from his horse. The second time is going to be fatal. He'll die within an hour of the battle. Lucius Fairchild is going to be a guy who's going to take over for him. He's the guy in charge of the 2nd Wisconsin at this point. He's a 30-year-old Ohioan who will ultimately end up being the governor of Wisconsin someday. He was a descendant of the Pilgrims who landed in 1620, not far from where I am right now. Mm -hmm. You so got he's chills got up your spine because of that? I know how you feel oh, about Pilgrims. Not a fan. Not a fan. But he's a tough, hard-fighting guy. He quickly gives orders to his guys. There's that story the witness says that he literally rolled up his sleeves and started yelling orders for the troops. Tolliver, he's going to finally show up and the rest of his division is finally going to get there. So we mentioned before that Tolliver was going to, was sending in the, the Stonewall Brigade. He's going to get, his last three brigades are going to get there at this point, but it's going to be a little bit too little too late. They're going to drive back 19th Indiana a little bit, but that's about all they can really do. It's just it's too dark. Not much is going to be going on. Darkness is going to fall more. The fighting is going to peter out at this point. And after the shooting is going to finally end, this is when you're going to see the guys coming out with the lanterns looking for the bodies. And they're going to they're yeah. kind of do that final thing. And, and that's how this is going to work itself through as night continues to get deeper into the deep. Into yeah. night. The fighting in this battle only lasts about two hours, but there are men that actually don't make it. They're, they're supposed to come fight and they don't make it onto the battlefield. And one of those men is Jubal Early. And the reason for that is because this railway cut that Jackson thought like, oh, shit, this is going to be a good thing for me. Turns out it's not because... Early's men were unable to pass over the embankment that they needed to pass over in their immediate front and instead had to file through this narrow cut. 
So what happens? Battery B advances from its original position and totally gives it to Early, just absolutely pounds him and his men. He described it as a, as a galling fire of shells and canister. He's eventually going to form to the left and rear of Trimble, but they arrive too late. So we can say here that Early was late. So this fighting as it winds down, as we said, it, it only lasts about two hours. There were times like during the fight that neither side would back down, but then eventually they just had to. They just, they they wore themselves out. The worst part of the fighting is on the Union left where Gibbon is for much of the battle and Gibbon would go on to be in many battles. He's going to be right through to the end of the Civil War. He's out a couple times because he gets wounded at Fredericksburg, he gets wounded at Gettysburg, but he said that this fighting at Bronner's Farm was the most terrific musketry fire he'd ever listened to. Now when you look at the body count and you look at the at some of these casualty numbers just on the Union side for example, 2800 guys went in they lost 1,100, which I'm not going to test your math skills, but that's 40%. Please don't. Mary. This is the this is we, the episode that you did test my math skills in before, and, and I failed miserably. But just look at some of the individual numbers. Set 20, the second Wisconsin, out of 430 guys, they lost 276. The seventh Wisconsin lost 164, the 19, 210. On the Confederate side, they lost the same amount, 1,100 guys, but they had more out of 3,500. Mm-hmm. So then you look at some of these individual numbers, the 26th and the 21st Virginia, each lost over 70% cash. Casualties. The 21st themselves, 82%. Only the first Texas and Antietam had a higher casualty number in the entire war for the Confederates. Stonewall Jackson himself had a big personal loss in this one. He lost his nephew, William Preston, in this battle. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the few that affected him deeply. His nephew had just had wasn't in the, in the war all that long, and he'll be killed. And there's a story where he teared up and had to walk into the woods and, you know, had to collect himself. And this yeah. is, you know, Jackson, his reputation is a hard, stern type of guy. But this is one, again... This is the tip of the iceberg of this battle because mm-hmm. the second battle of Manassas was just beginning. After Bronner's farm, the feds are beaten up their wits. So they're going to fall back to Manassas Junction. Now, Stonewall, we, we said this before, not a good day for old TJ, okay? No, it's um, not. He was not ready to fight. When this thing started, he was sleeping. He didn't expect it. They literally ran into each other on this one. But he also screwed up a lot because he only ended up using four of his brigades versus just six Union regiments, and he couldn't get through them. He had the reputation of being this great maneuvering general, this big chess master guy. The Rebs were uncoordinated. They, they fought piecemeal, frontal assaults. He recklessly exposed himself many, many times on <laughs> Bronner's farm, okay? But bad communication with his division commanders. But he did lose a couple of his own guys. He lost Yule, lost that leg. Yep. Tolliver's going to be injured as well. He had to personally lead his troops. But the one thing he did that really screwed up, okay, we mentioned before how Gibbon was able to calmly put in his infantry guys. Yep. He didn't use his artillery. He had other artillery. He had the Louisiana Guard, Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Walker, you know, he had the Chesapeake artillery. He had a lot of artillery options he didn't use. And because he didn't use them, it allowed Gibbons infantry to approach and move up on. He, they weren't able to be driven off. They were able to move forward. Mm-hmm. And this was a huge, huge mistake for Jackson. In this two-hour battle, he could have kept that a lot of the infantry at bay towards the Warrington Turnpike or beyond by using his artillery. He didn't use them. He only used them at the very beginning. And then he allowed the troops to march right up and set up that battle line and, and reinforced by Gibbon. And that's one, you know, people want to talk about Kernstown a lot with, with Jackson. Yep. This one is up there with one of his all-time worst. This is up there with, with one of his bad albums he put out. This is not a good day for Jackson. <laughs> this is not on his wasn't. top 10 greatest hits, no. that's for sure. No. Jack- 
I was going to say, Jackson does say, though, like of the Union, you know, that the Confederates are very impressed with them. Like Jackson said that the Union maintained their ground with obstinate determination. One Confederate soldier said that when it started to grow dark, and, and you'd said this before, everything around was lighted up by a blaze of musketry and explosion of balls like a continuous flat flash of lightning. But yeah, mm-hmm. this is definitely not Jackson's greatest day here at all. You know, he's going to lose a, like officers like like Ewell's out till Gettysburg now. Tolliver, as we mentioned, he ends up getting wounded and he's actually going to be out until Fredericksburg. And then he comes back in. He doesn't see much action at Fredericksburg, but then he's sent down to Florida and eventually he makes his way to Savannah and he's actually going to be in charge of all troops in that area when, when William Tecumseh Sherman comes through. But he's also going to be at Fort Wagner. Or Savannah. As well. But the other thing that hurt Jackson was he was going up against arguably the best brigade in either army in, in, in the Black Hats, which would become yep. the Iron Brigade. John Gibbon, conversely of Jackson, was brilliant here. He really, really was. He used his regiments to plug holes effectively. His training really showed because they didn't fall back. They didn't retreat. Unlike some Crescent Moon, you know, corps and other battles. <laughs> um, they stayed online. But this was really the, the Black Hats baptism by fire. This really, really was. Only that second Wisconsin any real battle experience at this point. Yep. And then this would be repeated over and over future battles yeah, with these guys. They see, you know? hard, they see really hard fighting like that, you know, it's just a few weeks later, they're at South Mountain. And again, they're with Battery B. This like, you know, that's their artillery. And they just like under fire, they keep going and going and going. It's like they don't know when to stop. So you can see why they eventually earn the name that the Iron Brigade. You know, this no. is the beginning of it here. So what's funny is Pope, he finally goes, oh, that's where Jackson is. He finally learns where Jackson is at this point. After that battle, he's going to get two incorrect messages he's going to get. And this is going to, we're not going to go into the whole second Manassas again, but just real quick. The first message says that James Longstreet was stopped by John Buford west of the Bull Run Mountains. Yep. He's like, all right, okay, fine. I don't have to worry about him then. And he also hears that Jackson was driven away from the Warrington Turnpike. Neither are true, okay? Pope is going to write a letter to Henry Halleck. He's going to write, a severe fight took place, which was terminated by darkness. The enemy was driven back at all points, and thus the affair, thus the affair rests. So he's saying, he's, you know, he's a cocky guy. That's kind of his whole deal. But he realizes now that he knows where Jackson is. And so he still wants to finish Jackson off. Mm-hmm. He's going to order all five of his corps to show up at the old first Bull Run battlefield. He's going to blow that conch shell to get them all to Manassas yeah. again. And they're all coming back. He wants to, he wants Jackson's head on a friggin' pike is what oh, he wants. He, he becomes absolutely obsessed with him. And that that's that's his mistake right there, you know, and you can just see McClellan back in Washington doing that whole he's behind the tree rubbing his hands together like, yes, because McClellan, this is kind of just, you know, I roll my eyes at this. I think McClellan, we talked about this in our episode about Second Manassas last year. McClellan wanted him to fail. But Pope, you know, he wants to attack Jackson vigorously at first daylight. The message he says is to all of his commanders, assault Jackson vigorously at first daylight in the morning. I see no possibility of his escape. He asked Phil Carney to lead the attack. Carney gets the order, looks at it, and tells the messenger, tell General Pope to go to hell. We aren't marching before morning. That's what he tells Pope. I have to say this about Carney. He had his bitch on at this battle. Like, he was not a happy man at all. No, but again, this goes to show what they thought of Pope. He's like, screw him. I don't blame him. I'm not going to mark at night. You know, traffic sucks as it is. I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal with Virginia early in the morning. Uh, While this was happening, James Longstreet is still marching through the night on the 28th, contrary to Pope's understanding. So eventually, Pope is going to learn that Longstreet is going to connect with Jackson, leading to that two days of fighting 
that's going to create the Battle of Manassas, which is going to result in that very one-sided rebel victory. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, right? exactly. So just to start wrapping up our episode about Bronner's Farm, Gibbon meets with King Patrick and Doubleday after the battle, and Gibbon is not a happy man. He's okay, I think, with Doubleday, but with Patrick, he's like, what the fuck, dude? Like, we needed your reinforcements. Where were you? And Doubleday hadn't given him everything he had, you know, and King is still kind of out of it from that seizure. But, you know, they're trying to decide what to do. And they're like, okay, well, where the, f- where the fuck is M- McDowell? And Gibbon's like, well, he's lost in the woods. So they decide that the best course of action, as you said, is Manassas Junction. But the guy that writes that on a piece of paper and passes it around to, to King Patrick and Doubleday is John Gibbon. And they all agree that Manassas Junction is the place that they need to meet. And so it goes to show that uh, honestly how history might have been a little bit different if Jackson didn't wake up with those horses, if they kept marching by. Yeah. Because really once finding out where Jackson was is what's pulled everyone together at Manassas. So that battle could have been in Centerville. Or it could have been somewhere else, but it all led up to Second Manassas because of what happened at Bronner's Farm. Bronner's Farm was, to think about Gettysburg, was the Hearst Woods of this battle, is what mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. Ironically, also with the Iron Brigade. Yeah. Right? And so it led to a complete melee, two unsuspecting armies fighting. But in this case, John Gibbon, and the rest of them too, Doubleday for that for that matter as well, but especially Gibbon, was prepared and ready. Looked like he could fall out of bed and fight where Jackson was, for whatever reason, was disoriented, yep. had a tough time uh, getting people where he needed to be. And he couldn't push them back. Maybe it was so, that post-nap, you know, how you sometimes wake up post-nap and you don't know what the fuck year it is. Maybe he had that. Not enough persimmons. Had to have been. <laughs> not enough you know? lemons. He didn't have his lemons. He had his lemons. So what's next, Mary? What's coming up down the pipe for uh, us? So what's next? We are going to be talking Battle of Cheat Mountain. And then yeah, we... we'll be talking about old Nathan Kimball again. Yep. Speaking of... Uh... Speaking of people beating Sowell Jackson, now he gets to go against Bobby Leo. And how this one's going to turn out. Yep, we will. And then we are going to be doing our first episode. We're going to be kind of profiling some prominent Freemasons in the Civil War. And for the anniversary. I hate hate them. I know. Well, I'm sorry, but my favorite movie is National Treasure. So that's what we're doing. It's a true story, I know. I know it is. And plus, you said I'm the boss, right? So I get to pick what we do. What the hell kind of delusions going on here? I'm just kidding. Uh, We are going to be talking about General William Haynes Lytle, who fought and was unfortunately killed at uh, the Battle of Chickamauga in 1863. And we're going to be doing that um, for the anniversary weekend of Battle Chickamauga this year. And he is a very prominent Freemason. So we're going to be telling his story. Um, And at the end of September, actually on September 29th, we will be having our third book club meeting. This one is for Assassin's Accomplice. And we are very, very pleased to announce that the author, Dr. Kate Clifford Larson, will be joining us for that discussion. So if you Very cool. would so like to behave attend, yourselves when she's on, Mary, yes, you watch that multi I know. Hey, I watched my mouth when we had Dave Taylor on. I'm always good when we have guests okay. on. All right. Just, okay. Let's see what happens. <laughs> There's not $5 in the swear jar at the end of those episodes. That's for sure. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> anyway, if you Anyways. if you all would like to sign up for the book club and attend the meeting, uh, it's going to be via Zoom September 29th at 6 o'clock. Info at CivilWarBreakfastClub.com and we will add you to the list. And also for those who have subscribed to our newsletter, our next newsletter should be coming out sometime in the next week or so. 
Yay. All right, Manuel, good good episode. Always fun to talk about this. I mean, certainly this is one that uh, anybody who's been to Bronner's Farm, it's one of those few battlefields that's on a big battlefield that still looks virtually exactly the same. You can stand there on that yeah. ridge line, you can look down at the Warren to Pike and see exactly, you know, where Hatch and Doubleday and Patrick and Gibbon had marched down that road. You can stand exactly where Jackson stood. You can see exactly where the battle was. You can see exactly the woods that the seventh went into. You can see all that stuff. So if you're in the area and you go to Manassas, it's shame on you if you don't go to the <laughs> The deep cut, and especially Bronner's Farm. Don't just go to the Hill House. Go across the street. Go to Bronner's Farm and check that out because there won't be a lot of people there. You get to go wherever you want. But it is a fantastic vista. It is a great place. It is perfectly preserved. You can really, really understand how this exact battle went. When you had the Iron Brigade, before they were the Iron Brigade, against the Stonewall Brigade. And it's iron versus iron, mono versus mono. And it's one that's a battle that really, really sets up a really two-day blood fest the next two days because of this one. So it's a great place to visit. It's a great place to, to go. And it's a great battle to study because it's such a great tactical situation. But given, mm-hmm. and it goes to show, sometimes you have more men, it still doesn't work out. You still need to be a tactician. That's what Gibbon proved. Exactly. Well, Gibbon is, he he's such a talented guy, you know, and again, you know, the, the whole, he's great with artillery. He's just this badass, hard fighting soldier. But I think, you know, given what happens at Bronner's Farm, it almost seems like this is the first day of Manassas. Kind of like, you know, they say Chickamauga was just a two day battle. Well, to me, it's a three day because of what mm-hmm. Minty and Wilder do. I think in some ways you can consider Second Manassas to be a three day battle because what's happening here is some pretty hard, tough fighting that is setting up for what is going to happen over the next two days. And that's exactly, you know, Minty and Wilder, what they do at Chickamauga. You can really make a comparison there with the two of them. What, what they do with their delaying tactics and everything else really sets up for, you know, what happens at Chickamauga. So it's it's really interesting to, I think, to look at it that way, that maybe this is actually a three-day battle and not a two-day battle. No, absolutely. It all sets it up. So off we go, Mary. Great conversation. It's always fun to talk about mm-hmm. the nascent days of the Iron Brigade. John Gibbons, already John Gibbon at this point in the Iron Brigade is... Not the Iron Brigade yet, but they are pretty much the Iron Brigade. They got another, point. what is it, September 14th, they become the Iron yep. Brigade, right? Then they got the 24th Michigan. You got Michigan men. Now it's a real situation. Yep, Not exactly. Ohio guys, Michigan guys. Exactly. There's no Ohio guys in the Iron Brigade. There's some more Wolverines. Anyway. <laughs> All right, Mary. So great conversation. So off we go till next time. So again, I'm looking forward to talk about Cheat Mountain and live this weekend as we start to think about um, the book club coming up down the pike and some more fun stuff coming yep. up down the road. So Mary, good night to you. Great as always to uh, to be seen. And uh, we, will, we will talk to you soon on the other side, as they say, as yep. I finish off my Iron Brigade mug and get ready to turn the page to cheat mug. Yes. And thank you for always bringing it. You are no, the most awesome it. Civil War nerd I know. Oh, God, here we go. Again. All <laughs> right. Well, off we go. Off I we haven't go. said that in a while. Anyway, so there you go. So um, off we go and have a great night. And we look forward to talking to everybody on the other side. Stay healthy and stay safe. And we will talk to you soon. Stay out of the way of those hurricanes. And go Patriots. Yes, go Pats. Go Pats. Anyway, see y'all later. Bye, Cam. <laughs> Bye, Cam. <laughs> anyway, guys, we will see y'all next week. All right. Later, okay. everybody. Okay, bye, guys.